Question for you as we get started. Uh, think about this, and then I'm going to ask you to share a name. Uh, as you think about your life right now, who, who, who are you connected with? Who's like the person you go, I am really connected with that person? Not your spouse or something like that. You're a friend, another person that's like you connect. There, you have a bond with them. Matter of fact, you would say, we've got like a deepening relationship. Now think about that for a moment. All right, tell somebody around you. Who is it? Come on, tell them. You, you don't have to name names. You could say it's a close friend. Come on, don't just sit there looking at me. You can do it. Share with the people around you. Here you go. Come on, spill the beans. Who is it? All right, Terry. <laughs> you little stinker. How many said, as you think about it, it's somebody that's so incredibly different from you, you it's shocking to you that you even have a relationship with them? A few. How many say, as I think about it, they're really kind of like me? I don't, I don't mean they actually look like you, but they might be. There's some connecting thing. They like something you like. You, there's some connecting thing like that. Keep that in mind as we look at this very interesting mini-sermon. It's one of six that Jesus gives here embedded in the, the Sermon on the Mount. We're looking at the first one today, and as Chris shared last week, it's got kind of a neck snapper. He's going to share some things that people have wrestled with for eons. And to this day, I'd like to tell you, we're going to get the actual answer. We're not. We're going to be left with a challenge from, from Christ. So we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, if you recall. The key here is it's an upside-down kingdom. Uh, and Jesus is going to remind us in this passage that things are quite different than we think they are in his kingdom. And we think that his kingdom works in a way that we would probably run it, but actually it runs in the way God runs it, and it's quite different than how we would do it. And we're going to see that the listeners that heard this sermon were shocked, and I think we're actually still shocked today. But I'm hoping we can drill down into this passage and we can see something that perhaps we haven't seen before, and that is, what is happening here? What is happening? Why is Jesus taking this particular tact? And I think it's to prove a point that he made that Chris shared last week. That Jesus, if you recall, Jesus didn't come to what? Remember? To a, that's right, to abolish the law. I didn't come to change the law, to set it aside, to make it invalid. As a matter of fact, I've come to fulfill it. So he's now going to share some sermons, some little mini sermons that are going to express what does it look like for the law to be fulfilled, not just through Christ, but in us as well. And this is what shocked the listeners, and I think it shocks us too. And if you recall, Chris's one of his primary points last week was, we think that we can do this, but we can't. As a matter of fact, I was tempted to open with, you have heard Chris say, but I say to you, because actually uh, all the things Chris shared last week really resonated with me. Uh, I'm a person that likes the rules and guidelines and boundaries, and man, I could be a Pharisee tomorrow. I love that stuff. I mean, those are the rules. Stick with the rules. 
I purposely forced myself to drive the speed limit to Phoenix just to humble myself because apparently no one in Arizona drives the speed limit. No one. And people drive past you and they give you those affirmative gestures like you're doing a really good thing. Move over. That's a little something I'm wrestling with. But you know, the cool thing is we're going to look at something that's virtually impossible. Jesus is about to lay out something as he did last week, this week again. This is completely impossible. It can't be done if we're the ones dependent on making it happen. So let's look at where he's going in terms of expressing this. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Great little passage. You probably have heard it preached many times. Jesus says this, again, continuing with the Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 21, You have heard it said to people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Verse 23, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar, then go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Verse 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way to court or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and that judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. For truly, I tell you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Lord, we're not even sure what you're talking about here. But we want to open our hearts. We want to see and embrace a kingdom not like the one that we're living in, one that things are done differently, and the only way we live there is through the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that we can lay it all down at the foot of the cross. We can humble ourselves before you and tell you of our great need and be re-energized and empowered through the love of your Son Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit that you've given to us every we just want to open our hearts to you now and ask you to guide us into your word this evening. In Jesus' wonderful name and for his sake and the sake of your kingdom. Amen? Amen. Amen. So here we go. The pivot point in this whole passage, and you're going to hear it a couple of more times as we move in deeper into the Sermon on the Mount, is this. You've heard it said this way, but I'm saying to you something different. Now, if we were to look into the book of Corinthians, we would see Paul delving in more depth into this whole concept of a new covenant. Hey, it's a new time. It's a new age. Something new has come, and it's not that the old has gone away. It's been fulfilled, and now it's a whole new gig, a whole new game. And we're going to find that instead of lowering the bar, Jesus here and then again in some other passages, we find that he actually raises the bar even higher than it was in the law. And instead of asking the question, what does God's law look like and how do we obey that? Now we have to ask the question, wait a minute, if there's a whole new standard, if there's a new bar, what is that about? How do we meet that? And the answer is, you can't. It's so high. Matter of fact, you thought it was high before? 
I, I was a high jumper in high school before I discovered I was not a high jumper. <laughs> now, just to, just to give you a little context, and I hate to use this phrase like back in, back in those days, but I want to tell you, back in those days, we didn't have like those cushy mats. That you, you know, that, there was not even foam. They had a pile of sand, and you jumped over a bar into a pile of sand. And this was before Fosbury did his really cool flop where you jump backwards. You would kind of like try to get one leg over and then hope you could throw the other one over before you landed in the pile of sand, which was always exciting because the sand was, I don't know, three, four inches deep. Boom. And I remember as a sophomore in high school, my father came to attract me. Now, he never came to these things. And he came and stood there with the other five people watching the high jumpers. That was it. You know, it's so exciting over there off to the side of the track. Unlike today where it's right in the middle of the track, there's all kinds of cool things happening and exciting things are, are expected. No, no, this was way off to the side near the bushes. Those are the high jumpers over there. So me and several guys are jumping. And, you know, we're jumping pretty significant heights. I'm talking four and a half feet. You know, that bar is like right, right about there. I want you to think about that. You go home and put a bar up four and a half feet, and you jump over it into a pile of sand. And, stop, and you can come back and stop your laughing tomorrow. So I jump, and I, and I make it, and I'm like, yes. And they raise the bar. You know, that, that's the dirty part of that particular activity. That was not good enough. Let's go higher. And so up it goes, up, up, up. And pretty soon the bar was literally at my height. I was about 5'11 then. They put the bar at 5'11. I'm thinking, huh? and I'm done. I mean, why even jump? I could just walk under, <laughs> fall on the sand, and be done. But you know what? There was a magical moment. It all came together. The steps worked, the, you know, blah, 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 and boom, I'm over. And the bar's like vibrating, but stayed, and I'm like, yes! And as I walked off to the side, and my dad was standing there, and I walked over to him, he goes, ah, that was pretty good. Hope you do better next time. <laughs> I'm thinking, you don't understand. That was it. <laughs> that was every time right there. There was a moment in, in, in my life when I, when I realized the bar is always going to be higher. Uh, it's always going higher. You will never actually be, eventually you're going to hit the bar, that's it, you're out. Which, by the way, the next week I changed to the long jump. Because that seemed to make way more sense, and I could actually do that one instead of the high jump. Partially because I came to a, a come-to-Jesus moment, but also because I realized my legs are too short to do that kind of thing. That was not for me. And perhaps there was that word that I'd heard that snatched the plug out from under, under me as well. Well, Jesus is kind of doing the same thing. He's thinking, oh, you think the bar was high with the law? Not even close. As a matter of fact, and then he gets into these very interesting passages where he is attempting to show us, if you think you can be righteous by the letter of the law, guess again. That's not what it's all about. And that's why the religious community had so embraced that as the system to bring you into relationship with God. And Jesus is about to say, nope. As a matter of fact, you missed the boat on this one. And so what he's doing here is he's expressing to them what God's standards truly are and how the fulfilling of the law is way harder than we think it is. Because it's not about fulfilling the law. Jesus is the only one that will fulfill the law, not us that there's a higher standard and we can't do it by ourselves. So what is he saying to these folks, and why was this so shocking? We kind of read it and go, well, I'm not sure it's shocking, I just don't understand what he's talking about. Well, actually, here's the shocking part. All three of these things they were familiar with. We're not, but his listeners knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew what the law said about saying rude things to people. They knew what the law said when you 
slandered someone, they knew what the law said. When you murdered somebody, they knew what the consequences were. And look, they did the same thing we did. I've never murdered anybody. There you go. I'm over. I have passed the bar. But Jesus comes along and he says these amazing things, which are shocking to them. And the foundation, and you know, it's interesting, if you look in your Bible, it probably says this is the passage on anger. I actually think that's wrong. Murder, anger. But you know what? The passage is really not about murder and anger. You know what it's about? It's about relationship. It's about something deeper than this. It's not about a particular action. It's about what's beneath that. What does murder do? Think about that. When someone is murdered, they're dead. They're cut off. They leave anguish. They leave disappointment. They leave a big hole. He's going to now correlate some things that we do every day and say, in your heart, that's about the same because it has the same results. You just don't know it. So let's get into the passage and see what he's talking about here as he gets into the, the meat of what this is because the shock was, guess what? If you have anger, that brings the same judgment as murdering someone. If you say something that's slanderous or foolish to someone, that has the same sense of judgment that this does. And then shockingly, if you even say something stupid, that will bring judgment on you deserving of death and hellfire. Now, these people are like, what are you saying? That if we say something casual and it's wrong that hurts someone's feelings, that I'm in trouble? How can that be? And Jesus is going to go into the nuts and bolts of how that can be in just a moment. I think the one thing that, that we often forget is that, and David discovered this when God was bringing him into his uh, place of, of leadership. If, if you recall, uh, the brothers are brought out and Samuel's there and he's looking, you know, he's listening to the Holy Spirit, but the Lord speaking to him about which of these guys is to be kind of this person I'm going to anoint. And of course, who does he pick? The same people you, you and I would pick, right? The good-looking one, the tall one, the muscular one. Surely those are the ones you want. And he goes, no, no, no. Work your way down the list. No, no. Wait a minute. All that's left is like this little runty guy here. Did I miss something? And the answer is no. That's my kingdom expression right there. Shocking. His brothers were shocked. David was shocked. And I think that we, too, find that we get into some of these passages, we're going to be surprised that the Holy Spirit is saying it's not about what you can do. It's about what God can do in you. It's about the things that you have control over, but it's also about the things that God is going to do in your heart and in your life. So let's drill into this passage a little bit and see what Jesus is saying. He makes these very strong points, and he actually uses three examples to hammer home this truth that, you know what? God is a relational God. He's about relationships. That's why he came. That's why he's redeeming. It's about relationship. And if he's about relationship, so are you. Now, you know, I love Jay Winslow. I love his framing of the nature of God as a God of language and communication. But beneath that, why does he even communicate with us? You know why? Relationship. He opens the door for us to come in and have relationship. And then he says, not only do I want to have relationship with you, I want you to have relationship with me, and I want you to have relationship with each other that's totally different than anything that you're familiar with. And so Jesus is going to articulate those specifics in this particular passage. Now, these are people that were used to, just as we are, 
following the rules. Here's the way Christians act. Here's the way religious people act. You do this and you don't do that. And they pretty much had that system down. And along comes Christ. And he says to you, here's what you think you know about this that you think is true. Murder is bad. And they all nodded their heads. Yes, it is. And he said, well, guess what? There's other stuff that's just that's bad and has the same effects. And you just don't know it. So here he goes. He begins here with these three examples that he's going to blow their minds with. The first one is, here's what you need to realize. Your heart attitudes are super important. Super important. Two, your relationships will affect your worship. And if your relationships are coming off the rail, your worship will be invalidated. And three, even your interactions with those who are against you reflect something about the relationship that God has with you and you should have with them. So let's drill into the passages now and see what Christ tells us. Beginning of verse 21, he, he maps out this whole thing, which many times we've heard sermons that say, you know what, this means that if you're angry with someone, it's just like murdering them, but that's not what Jesus says here. He's basically saying, you know that this is bad. Murder is horrible. But I'm here to tell you that if in your heart, your heart attitude is wrong towards that person, it has the same effects. He's not saying you're murdering them. But he is saying you're bringing death, disconnection, bitterness, loss, a big hole. All the things that murder brings. And so he gets into this, this passage and he says, you know what? If you're angry in your heart, if you have unresolved anger, that actually impacts the relationship you have with others in a very dramatic way. Now, we all kind of think, well, come on. I mean, I was just a little angry. You know, you know the funny thing about anger? And again, the Proverbs are filled with some very interesting examples of this. What happens with anger? It, it comes on pretty fast, right, for, for most of us. And if we can kind of vent it and talk it through, okay, it kind of works its way out. What about that anger that doesn't vent, doesn't get worked out? Where does it go? Yeah, have you ever wondered that? Where does that anger go? Where does it go? And that's right, deeper into you. It doesn't fly around out here somewhere. It goes in. As a matter of fact, the, the, the Proverbs are quite clear that anger is like a seed and it gets into our hearts like dirt and then it begins to grow into something different and it can turn into bitterness, it can turn into uh, this long-term sense towards someone else that they're evil, not you, yet you've been misdealt and they're the evil ones. You begin to view other people poorly. You begin to separate yourself from them. And as a matter of fact, it, as it kind of ferments, it kind of grows and takes on this life of its own. And suddenly it becomes something that takes over a person's life and separates them from the people around them. So while Jesus is, is not specifically saying just because you're angry, that's like murdering someone, he's saying the consequences are exactly the same in the relationship. You will kill the relationship with unresolved anger if it's in your heart. Now, these folks are like, wait, 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 wait. I know that I never murdered anyone, but kind of everybody has anger, so what are you saying? And he's saying, guess what? Everyone is guilty here. Everyone. We're guilty of not resolving this well. And so using the excuse of, hey, you know, I've never murdered anyone, so therefore I'm obeying the law. Jesus says, no, actually it's deeper than that. Anger separates you from, from the people around you, and it separates your sense of being close to God as well. Because God is a relational being, he seeks relationships with us that are open, transparent. As a matter of fact, if you remember Chris going back to Genesis, 
Remember the first thing from the fall that people tried to do? They tried to hide. And then they covered up because they didn't want transparency. Well, that's what anger does. It causes us to not be transparent, not be open because it's connected with pain or disappointment or even uh, the things that have left us bitter. But you know, the cool thing is here, Jesus, he could have stopped right there and said, oh, you know, anger's bad. Okay, so let's just move on. But he doesn't do that. He goes, but not just anger. And then he goes on in the next verse. He says, if anyone says to his brother, Raka, which is basically is kind of a, a rude saying of like, you're an idiot. You're, you're incompetent. And of course, those things are never said nicely. Oh, you're such an incompetent person. I really love you. It doesn't go like that, does it? When we drop that bomb, it's sort of a, you're a dope, by the way. Those things, he's saying, have exactly the same effect. It's connected with this effect that murder has. And then he goes on, he says, well, wait, it's not just that. It's the fact that all the words that come out of your mouth are coming out of your heart. And even if you say something like, you're just a foolish person. Now we're thinking, wait a minute, I've said that to my kids before. I've said that to my friends. We're not talking about just kind of stupid things that come out of our mouths, although it could be that. It's when we actually kind of impose on someone, I think you're just an idiot. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want any relationship with you because you're not my kind of people. Jesus says, these are all in the same ballpark. Listen to what the Proverbs remind us about the power of the words that come out of our mouths. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away what? Wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 12.18, the words of the reckless pierce like a sword. You know who the reckless are? Us. Reckless with our words, just throwing them out there. But the tongue of the wise bring healing. Proverbs 30, 33. For just as churning cream produces butter, and as the twisting of the nose produces blood, nice metaphor, stirring up anger produces strife. Stirring it up. Whipping it up just like it's a butter churn. Now, I know no one in this room has ever done that kind of purposely, kind of like, oh, let me just whip you up a little bit. But, you know, we, we all fall into, fall into that. There's such a temptation. Someone's kind of losing control. Instead of giving them words of wisdom to help things diffuse, it's like, well, you think this is bad. Let me tell you how bad it really is or how stupid you really are or what an imbecile you are. All those things have the effect of separating relationships. Careless words, harsh words, slanderous things, uh, demeaning words. It all shows that we are putting ourselves in a judgment seat over someone else. And Jesus says, you know what? That separates you from people. And that's not what our relationship with Christ is about. It's about connectivity. And consequently, because he is relational, he's created us to be in relationship. And this cuts to the very core of what we're all about. So who of us is innocent from these things? None. Is this an impossible standard? Absolutely. Now just pause for a moment. Think about the words that come out of you, came out of your mouth just this week. Were they all encouraging and supportive? Or were there those other words? Those little bombs? With a friend or a kid or that person that cut you off in traffic? or Who? And by the way, I don't think Jesus is saying here, by the way, you say a stupid word, you're now on the fast highway to hell. As much as that is a separating experience that will now separate you from people 
and consequently give you a sense of separation from God, and he's attempting to connect. I didn't redeem you to be separate. I redeemed you to be connected, both with me and with each other. So this is not about us trying harder or trying to control our mouths. As a matter of fact, the book of James is quite clear about that. When it comes to the tongue, you know who can control it? Not us. I know we think we can, but we can't. But the Holy Spirit can. Listen to what James says in James 1, verse 19. It's not about trying harder. It's about this. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Every one of you should be, you know this passage, right? Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, he's not saying don't be angry. There'll be times when you're angry. But we should approach it way differently than everybody else. We shouldn't jump to the conclusion. We shouldn't jump to anger as our first response. We should actually listen first instead of afterwards. He goes on to say in verse 20, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. It doesn't connect us with each other. It doesn't connect us with God. It separates us. And that's what Jesus is saying here in this, in this first passage. You think it's about murder and obeying the law so you haven't murdered anybody. But I'm here to tell you, dropping casual words, hurting people, creating separation, expressing your anger, those are having the same effect. They're separating you. And that's not what the kingdom of God is about. It's about connection. So that's the first thing that shocked him. They're like, "Uh uh-oh. And then he goes on to the second item. He says, but not only that, beginning in verse 23, he tells this little story. If you're going to bring a gift to the altar and you're there at the altar, you remember. What do you remember? just not really connected with somebody. There's really a big relational barrier there. Stop what you're doing. Leave your gift. Go and work it out. Then come back and offer your gift. What's the point here? Which comes first? Relationship or sacrifice? Which is the most important? Well, the answer is relationship. I want you to have relationships that are open and honest. He doesn't want deception inside the church where you have people that should be connected, but instead of being connected, they're attempting to worship God, but their worship is not genuine because they are so caught up in things that are distracting them, mostly relational tensions. And worship flows out of our relationship with God, doesn't it? I mean, isn't that what worship is about? Isn't that what we come? We come to be refreshed and be connected and be energized by the presence of the Lord. How can that happen when we have something against each other? And Jesus is saying, it can't. It won't. As a matter of fact, don't even bring an offering. Don't even come to, to open your mouth and bring a, bring a worship song. Work it out. Go to those people. Work it out. Who gets to take the initiative here? You do. And notice, the passage is very interesting. It says, if you remember that there's something against you. It's not that you have something against someone else. It's that you've offended them and they have something against you. And he's basically saying, it's, it's your duty to pursue them. Go after them. And I think that many times we think, well, hey, you know what? That's their issue. I, I, I kept my side of the street clean. The ball's in their court. Well, that may be true sometimes, but Christ is saying, if you can... You wait, and you initiate, and you go after them. You work out the relationship. You pursue reconciliation. 
You go and seek forgiveness if it's on your part. And don't come into the house of the Lord saying, we're going to have this worship experience, but my heart is far from the Lord because it's caught up in bitterness or anger or disappointment. If that's there, work that out. But again, I apologize, but back in the day, in the vineyard before we had all these kind of cool chairs and all that stuff, and this place was funky. Not that it's not funky now, it's just not as funky. We would have a communion time. We didn't do communion. We would say, okay, we're going to take the next 10 minutes. Before we do communion, if you've got stuff with people, you need to go and talk to them now. And we would take time, and people would get up, and they'd mill around and go and talk to people. And, you know, I mean, I don't think it solved every relation, relational problem, but it was an acknowledgement that before you come into worship, you need to kind of make sure the decks are clear here. And sometimes you just need to go and apologize to someone or to say, hey, are things okay? You know, I'm feeling kind of distant here. Are we okay? Do I, have, have I stepped on your toes? There is something to be said for, for that. So I would, particularly as we come to a time of communion tonight, I would ask you to kind of consider what the impact of this is. Christ is saying your worship is kind of invalidated if you have broken relationships that you could repair. If it, by you, if you could go and you could seek it out, the ball's in your court, not their court. Again, he's speaking to people who this is completely contrary to what they thought. They thought you just went into the temple and you brought a, brought a sacrifice and everything was made clean and there you go, it's done. And I can go away, I feel good. Because hey, I sacrificed my dove, I feel good, did, did the right thing, obeyed the law, didn't murder anybody, it's all good. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not. As a matter of fact, your worship is not even accepted because you have a gap between you and someone that doesn't, shouldn't exist. And that gap will affect the relationship you have before your heavenly father. It's interesting too, I love in this passage, it says, if you remember. How does that work? The Holy oh, Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit, come on. Really, do I have to think about that now? Yes, you do. And let me, let me just be honest with you. There have been times when I have clearly heard the Spirit say, you need to do blah, blah, blah. Didn't do it. And then afterwards, I realized that an opportunity had been made available that if I had just been obedient and followed through, God would have done a marvelous thing. But I didn't do it. And you know what happens when you, when you don't do it? It's not that you get judgment or condemnation as much as you feel a sense of loss. I could have done something that restored someone or some issue, and I blew it. And God is good to forgive, but unfortunately, many times those opportunities, they don't, get to, they don't cycle around again. Sometimes we, we get one little shot, and that's it. The, uh, when I was a young guy, shockingly, back, uh, I, I worked for my grandfather who had a little farm, and uh, it was great. We get to drive the tractor. I drove his truck around when I was 12, you know, it's every boy's dream. Animals and machines, and you can like ride them and drive them. And so we did a lot of stuff. Well, somewhere in my middle school brain, I think that's an oxymoron, but somewhere in there, <laughs> I got the thought that I can just go and drive my grandfather's stuff anytime I want to. So one day after school, I rode over with a buddy. We got his pickup truck and drove it around. And I'm not talking about driving around in the field. We like drove it around the neighborhood and drove it around, drove it around. And as I was driving it, kind of thinking about taking it back to his little place, I drove past, the, he had a farm that was separate, 
drove past the farm and saw his other truck, his work truck there, and realized he was on his way home. And I'm in his truck. So I took the back way home, but on the back way home, being the middle school kid that I was, rushing, I slid into a bridge and like dented the bumper. But you know, hey, I backed it into the garage so he wouldn't see it. <laughs> Surely, and we got on my bicycle with my buddy and rode home. Uh, needless to say, that did not go well. It unfolded badly, and you know, all truth came out, and it was a kind of a sad day. And fortunately, it's changed my relationship with my grandfather. It really went south from, from there. I mean, and, and things are bad. Years later, when uh, Shelley and I were first married, I had this inkling from the Holy Spirit. And, and I knew it. I knew that because God, you know, he will repeat things to you over and over, right? You don't get it the first time. I, you know, I'll keep saying this until the opportunity passes. And so several, several opportunities came where I should call my grandfather. I'm living in Tucson. He lived back in the south. I should call him and apologize for that smushed bumper. Now, by the way, the bumper cost nothing to fix. I ended up paying for it, but that didn't make any difference. There was never kind of a reconciliation. So I had this inclination once, twice, three times. You know what I did? Nothing. Because I thought, you know, I'd be embarrassed, or how awkward would that be, and what would I say, blah, 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 blah. A week or so after that, I got a call from my mommy, said, and she said, um, I got bad news, your grandfather just died. And blah, 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 blah. You know, I got to tell you, I was crushed. One, with the loss of my grandfather, who, who I loved. But you know what I was also crushed by? That I'd missed an opportunity to reconcile. What would it have taken? Nothing. A phone call. How hard would that have been? That's exactly how I felt. God will give us plenty of opportunity. And if we're at the altar and we brought our gift, don't be surprised if the Holy Spirit doesn't whisper to you and remind you that there's someone you really need to go to and you need to follow up with. You need to seek some reconciliation. Listen to what, what the Lord says of this passage. This is from the message, which is not a version of the Bible. Let's just make that clear. It's a super paraphrase. I, 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 I get that. Do not memorize passages in the, in the message, but I just, want you, I just want you to hear this. This is verse 23. This is how I want you to conduct yourselves in these matters. If you enter the place of worship and are about to make an offering and you suddenly remember a grudge that a friend has against you, abandon your offering there, leave immediately, go to that friend and make things right. Then and only then should you come back and prostrate yourself before the Lord. And I think that sometimes we get that backwards, right? We prostrate ourselves before the Lord, and he's saying, you know, before you, could you, like, take care of business first? Could you take care of the things I've laid on your heart? So I just would encourage you to think about that. Well, number three, Jesus goes on, and now he gets to the really prickly stuff, and I think this is hard for us even today. He says, okay, I want you to, you've got the picture now. Murder, that's bad stuff, but, you know, you're doing some other stuff too that's just as bad because it's relationship breaking. And then two, you're coming into worship with the wrong stuff, bad attitudes, broken relationships. That's not acceptable. That's not what I'm looking for. And then he gets to the really hard one. Not only are you to cultivate relationships with the people that you know and you love and you're close to, he says, but listen to this, verse 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. And he goes to this very interesting little scenario. Do it while you happen to be walking together on the way to court. <laughs> 
or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and he goes on and on and you'll have to pay for that. Now this is not a commentary on how do you take care of civil matters. This is a commentary on even those that are oppose you, God calls us to cultivate relationship with them and to do our part, particularly if we've been, by the way, the, the context of this passage is you're in the wrong. You've done something wrong. And he is reminding us the power of relationships is it restores things and you would be surprised at the outcome. It won't be perhaps what you think it is. Now, I have to tell you, I read this passage and I go, well, I'm not even sure who he's talking about here because, I mean, what, what enemies? Oh, we've all got them. People that step on our toes, people that are obnoxious, people that, you know, they're not serving. I mean, if you've been to the motor vehicle recently, it's, you know, it's folks that drive you crazy. And Jesus says, no, be gracious to them. Build relationship with them. Work it out with them. Be kind, be gracious. The relationship that God has established with you is just like the one you're establishing with them. You were them. You were the enemy of God. You were the adversary. You were the one who thought you were going to put God on the dock. And he's saying, you know what? I'm asking you to do the same thing that I've done with you. I came after you. I sought to reconcile you. I worked to bring you close to me. Curiously enough, later in these sermons, in verse 48, 46, Jesus is going to make this very challenging statement. I'm sure that uh, we'll get into the depths of it later, but listen to this. If you only love those who love you, so what? What kind of reward is that? Don't even the tax collectors do the same thing? If you greet only your brothers and your sisters... What are you doing that's different than anybody else? Don't even the Gentiles do the same thing? Now, he's speaking to a Jewish audience, so they're hearing tax collector. Oh, those Roman tax collectors, they're a bunch of baloney. We hate them. And then he pulls out the Gentiles, the unbelievers. They do stuff that you don't even do. Aren't you just like them if this is the way you act? And when we think about this, the truth of the matter is we gravitate towards people we like. They like us. We're happy with them. We're nice to them because they're nice to us. You know, we do them a favor because we know they could do a favor back. But what about doing favors to someone who will never return a favor? Or what about being gracious to someone who's actually kind of stinky? And they don't, they're not gracious at all. As a matter of fact, they think they deserve your favor. What about them? Jesus says, yes. Go the distance. Build relationship with them too. Be gracious to them. God has been gracious to you. You'll be gracious to them. It'll be interesting. This is the first of several calls that will happen in this passage where Jesus says we need to love beyond ourselves and beyond those who are like us and lovely. We would find them lovely. As a matter of fact, there was a time in our Bible study one time when our home group, Shelly and I, kind of looked at each other and said, wow, we're kind of with people that we would not naturally be friends with. They're like totally different than us. We don't have any connecting points other than the Lord. That was a wonderful time. Because It's like, this is, hey, we're getting stretched here. And while it was stretching, it was a blessing as well. But you know, the cool thing about this passage is it really speaks of the type of humility God calls us to. It's not about me and how I feel about it. It's about what can I do for that person? How can I encourage them? How can I be a blessing to them? And even though I may have done something wrong, what can I do to be gracious? It's totally counterintuitive about relationships. Because we think about relationships, we go, well, it's, I'm going you know, to cult up, I'm going to network 
with those folks that can do something for me. And Jesus is saying, I'll tell you what, why don't you network with people that will do nothing for you? Matter of fact, in some cases, they want to take your stuff away. Network with them. Be gracious to them. Because that is what God's heart is. It's about relationship with those who are against him. He will seek them. He will pursue them. He will go after that one sheep that's out there wandering around. He'll go after them. So I want you to do the same. Now, his hearers, and I think we alike, we hear this and we say, you have got to be kidding me. Really? This is the norm? These are the norms? And Jesus says, yep. Because if you want to fulfill the law and reflect the heart of God, it can't be like something you can do. It can't be something you can just like pull out of the hat and go, oh, I'm just a very gracious person. I can be nice too. It has to be something that you can't do, but the Holy Spirit can do in us. It has to be something that results from God coming and redeeming us. And so therefore, we are responding out of that redemption towards others. Because remember, we too were against the gospel and adversaries towards God. So now he sums this up and he says, so here's the, here are the true standards. God is a relational God. He wants relationship with you and he wants you to have relationship with others. And there are things that can become barriers. But the good news is that's why he took our hearts of stone and turned them into hearts of flesh so that he could then work through us and we would not be closed to something that he was laying on our hearts. And he calls us to this higher standard so that in our actions and our choices, we're doing something that's totally different than everyone else around us. People should not look and go, oh, yeah, well, they're, they're a nice person, but you know what, I know a lot of nice people. People should look and go, what in the world are they doing? Why are they being nice to people that are being rude to them? Why are they treating people that are so different better than they treat themselves? Why is that? And the answer, of course, is found in the gospel because God has called us to this higher standard. Listen to what Colossians 3 says as sort of a closing reminder. Paul says this to the church there. He says, you know, you used to walk in these ways. He's referring to the ones Jesus is referring to. You used to walk like Pharisees. You used to walk in this stuff, even totally adversarial to the Lord. You used to walk like that in the life that you once lived. I think it's important for us to hear these words. We forget this part. We used to walk like that. That was us. Verse 8, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things that from that life, such as anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like stuff out of this passage? It goes on in verse 9, do not lie to each other transparency but since you have taken off your old self with all its practices you've taken that stuff off be completely transparent with each other build relationship that's what God has done with us it goes on in Ephesians chapter 4 to say some similar things to the church at Ephesus he says this do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only that which is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those, uh, those who listen. So, do we have control over some of this stuff? Oh, yeah. Can we, like, get some of this garbage out of our lives? Oh, yeah. But to actually put these things into practice, it takes the power of the Holy Spirit 
And that's what Christ is saying here. You can't do this. This is unattainable. The goal, the standard is so high, you'll never jump over the bar. But the good news is for the believer, he has changed our hearts, which then lead to the actions of change. And those actions will reflect the heart that, we, that God has given us. Now, a, a, a warning here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is going through this whole thing where he says, you know what, there's a foundation, it's Christ only. A lot of people have built on it, a lot of good stuff. He says, but be careful. You can build on that foundation works of the flesh. He said, but that's like building with hay and straw like the three pigs. That's like building with this temporary stuff. But when you do things in the spirit, it's like building with gold and precious stones and all this great metal. Because at the last day, they'll, it'll all be judged by fire. And guess what burns up? Hay and stubble. Gone. So we can try. We can try hard. But that's hay and stubble. We can let the Holy Spirit work through us, building on the foundation of Christ, engaging the Holy Spirit, and being obedient. And those are precious works that will endure uh, the testing at the judgment. So is it impossible? Absolutely. Should, should we do it in our strength? Well, you can try, but it won't work. It'll lead to disappointment. Is it counterintuitive to us? Absolutely, because if it weren't, it would be our kingdom. But it's not our kingdom, it's God's kingdom, which is completely different than ours. And it reflects the fact that our nature has now been changed, and we're living by not just a, a law, we're living by a standard that's so high uh, only through Christ can it be done. Now, should we deal with our words? Should we take initiative? Should we seek the good of others? Absolutely. Um, we have to make some choices along those lines, but it's in response to the Holy Spirit working in us. Proverbs sixteen twenty four. It's a good reminder to us. Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, and healing to the bones. Do you know where those pleasant words come from? They come out of our relationship with God through the Holy Spirit, nurturing that in us. So as we prepare for communion, the worship team comes up. I would just remind you that um, the point of communion is this, to remind us that God sought us out, and he still seeks us out, and he calls us into relationship but not just with him, with each other. So I'm kind of afraid right now that we're going to open the communion table. Nobody's going to come. Everybody's going to be like, not sure I should go. You know, the, the caution there is when the Holy Spirit prompts you and you know that you really need to follow through with that. If God is not prompting you, come and break the bread and remember the sacrifice of Jesus and be appreciative that God has sought us and has created us for a relationship. And that actually, he's given us the power through the Spirit to build the relationships with people around us. I want to remind you that uh, here in the vineyard, we come, we break the bread, we dip it in the cup, we give thanks, and of course, receive the gift of, of Christ. So I encourage you to bring somebody uh, up to the communion table with you as we worship. Uh, break the bread uh, and remember how good God has been. We'll worship together. Amen? Amen. Amen.